1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to another episode of Tales to Terrify. In two past episodes, I had mentioned Matt Ruff's novel Lovecraft Country, which I very much enjoyed, and Jordan Peele's Get Out, which I certainly enjoyed. I was surprised at how good of a horror movie that funny man Mr. Peele made, but turns out that he can work in different genres and do a good job. I may or may on a line between the two because both of them are unquestionably pieces of horror fiction, but both include racism in America. Now, word is circling that Jordan Peele is now producing a series based on Lovecraft Country for HBO. I think that the source material will translate to the small screen very well, and I wish Mr. Peele good luck on the endeavor. Watch for that at some point in the future from HBO. But here at Tales to Terrify, this is a special episode. It's the first of our Stoker nominee episodes. We will have four episodes featuring all of the nominees with the exception of Unfortunately, the winner. Joyce Carol Oates' The Crawl Space took the prize for superior achievement in short fiction, but a conflict kept it from being able to be aired here. So, congratulations to Miss Oates. And one last thing before we dive into the story. The Horror Writers Association has posted a handful of brief interviews with people from StokerCon this year to their YouTube channel. I'll post a link in the show notes, but I encourage you to check them out and see some of the faces from the horror community. Tonight, we'll be hearing from nominee Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey is a multi-award-winning author, editor, and publisher, and the recipient of over two dozen literary accolades, including the Bram Stoker Award, Benjamin Franklin Award, Eric Hoffer Book Award, Independent Publisher Book Award, the Indie Book Award, the International Book Award, and others. His non-linear novels include Palindrome Hannah, Phoenix Rose, and Psychotropic Dragon, and he has published two short stories and poetry collections, Scales and Petals, and Inkblots and Bloodspots, and Enso, a children's book. He has created anthologies such as Qualia Nos, The Library of the Dead, three volumes of Chiral Mad, You Human, and a series of illustrated books, among other projects. And now the Stoker nominee, Michael Bailey's Time is a Face on the Water.
5: Life is so beautiful that death has fallen in love with it. A jealous, possessive love that grabs at what it can. Yan Martell, Life of Pi I loved you then, and I love you now. And I have loved you every
6: second in between. Stephen King, Lysi's Story Act One: the past. What kind of play is this? Gune admired the
5: rivulets interrupting the otherwise placid pool of water in the creek out back, the place he went to think, to reflect on life, and to figure out what the fuck it all meant. Death had taken his daughter, Eravada, He and Lucy chose the name after looking through a book on names and originations. Eravada, sometimes air for short, meant child of water, which they thought clever since Gun's own name was Turkish for sun, and Lucy derived from the Latin lux, meaning light. From sun and light they had created a daughter they had sometimes called air and sometimes called water. And she was gone. Ten years ago, she'd died. Like it was yesterday. A tragedy? Yes, life's often a tragedy. But sometimes, much more. A comedy? No, no one's laughing. A history? Yes, there's much history involved. Life was a beautiful play, for the most part. Full of rich colors, warmth, love, and characters. So many characters. Full of dialogue, sometimes internal, but more often spoken aloud, whether necessary or not. And of course life was full of memorable scenes. One after another after another. Like rivulets of water dancing chaotically together. And yet, sometimes, life quieted down. And turned placid, allowing you to reflect more clearly on the three acts of past, present, and future. Act one in Gunn's case encompassed approximately thirty years of his life, and could be summarized by the following: birth, childhood, adolescence, transition to adulthood, sexuality, self-discovery. Finding and marrying the light of his life known as Lucy, and then writing the first act of Iravada's play, which, since life turns like a wheel, included her birth, childhood, adolescence. Iravada had lived a one-act play, and now I'm entering act two of my own two- or, if I'm lucky, three-act play. "'Gun mused, staring at the water. "'The creek, like the rest of State, had mostly dried up. "'Sparse rain the night before trickled water down the creek, "'which traveled the long path from the mountain "'and eventually through their backyard. "'Such a wonderful sound. "'Small pools of black had welled where it could, "'as insects skimmed over the surface.' Green, mossy river rocks below created the dark appearance. The rain often summoned newts, and less often salamanders, to the uncovered rocks, and Gun noticed now an orange-bellied creature with bubbly brown skin surfacing for air. He and Air had often carried these timid California newts around the property, and they didn't seem to mind. They held on tight, in fact, with a strong embrace, as if affectionate. The Taricha torosa he later discovered, secreted a potent neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, hundreds of times more toxic than cyanide, the same toxin found in pufferfish and certain frogs. They're not dangerous by any means, Gunn assured Lucy on more than one occasion. Well, they are, but only if you poke them with a stick real hard, and only if you ingest what they excrete. It was chain reaction of events, much like life, that made the California newt so interesting. To protect itself from birds, snakes, and other prey, the seemingly innocent creature had evolved over time to excrete the deadly toxin arching its back and writhing to expose the bright orange warning color of its belly if pierced, making the newt nearly untouchable as a species. Yet, as if a long-winded Darwinian joke, a few species of garter snake evolved as well, developing a genetic resistance to tetrodotoxin, putting this particular animal back in the food chain. And now they were nearly extinct. "'But who fucking cares about newts?' Gunn thought. "'As if in response, the newt crawled ever so slowly onto a dry rock and studied him. "'A blue and white sky reflected against the black mirror surface of the small pool, "'as well as the autumnal changing yellows, browns, and reds of grapevines "'intertwined in the branches of the trees lining the creek bed.' Seafoam green Spanish moss draped over limbs like delicate lace. Rainbow colors surrounded him as sunlight permeated the canopy in stripes. Looks, he thought. Lucy, my light. When placed together, their names formed the compound word, sunlight. Look, a heart, Airhead said one day. Holding a large crimson grape leaf against her chest, Gun took in the memory, as well as the crisp smell of redwoods and birches and dying grapes, as the wind offered all of it to him. They had sometimes floated leaves down the creek when it was running well, to see whose would reach the waterfall by the big rock the fastest. Gun found a yellow grape leaf and placed it in the water. It floated alone. Not moving anywhere, but spinning in slow circles, because there was not enough current to move it along. Lucy took Ervada's death the hardest. She rarely spoke, burying herself in cleaning and other such chores, whether necessary or not, and she refused to touch Air's room, as if waiting for her to return one day. It took her and Gunn three days to talk about what had happened. And even after they talked about it, neither had anything much to say. This lack of communication nearly wrecked their marriage. But they'd somehow stuck together and survived the roughest of times. It wasn't Lucy's fault, but both their faults. Communications, a collaborative enterprise. Will she stay? Gunn asked the water, meaning Lucy. Meaning would she stay alongside him to see how their play would ultimately end? To see what kind of play they had lived? He looked at his reflection, and his reflection looked back.
6: Ten years, he thought. Will she stay for ten more years?
5: Water rippled the wind from the bugs, from floating hearts and other debris, from the deadly newt crawling back under the surface. Ravens fluttered and cawed from the treetops, as if laughing from above at his internal dialogue. The scent of leaves decomposing on the wet ground at the edge of the creek was aromatic, along with the mushrooms— and lichen growing on fallen branches, and the snapped fir-tree dangling perpendicular over the water. And then the face changed, much quicker than the season. His once-brown hair was a little less brown, with perhaps some peppered gray, perhaps thinner. His facial hair appeared lighter as well, his cheeks more gaunt, his eyes
6: a shade darker and baggier. He was older. Ten years. This is what I will look like in ten years. A hazy version of
5: Lucy's face peered over his reflection shoulder, like a heat wave over hot asphalt. She, too, appeared ten years older. Crow's feet had begun at the corners of her eyes her face thinner,
6: her expression as sad as his. This is what she will look like in ten years. She was a
5: stunning woman, always. Add another ten years, and another ten years, and hell, even another, and she'd still be as beautiful as the day he fell in love with her all those years ago. But that was more of the past. Love's a hard thing to find after tragedy. Gunn turned and was surprised to find Lucy standing there. This was his daydream, after all. His glimpse into the looking-glass. She didn't say anything at first. Only put a hand on his shoulder. He put his hand over hers. And together they looked at the creek. The high afternoon sun had dropped closer to the horizon to become a setting sun, the colors changing once more before their final fade to colorless night. The yellows more orange, the oranges more red, and the reds becoming various shades of purple like the mountain range to the east. The colors seemed warmer almost glowing, although it was much colder than when he had first come out to the creek to think. "'I found something new,' she said, meaning something of Aravada's. Ten years had passed, and they were still finding pieces of her past scattered around them. A week after her funeral, which was also a week after ere's tenth birthday, Gunn found a shriveled balloon left over from her birthday party. He found it in the laundry hamper, of all places.
0: not it necessarily thought matching. it was
5: a bunched-up sock mixed in with the rest of her dirty clothes. Air had often worn bright socks. And he remembered knowing then that Lucy would wash these clothes, even though she'd never be able to wear them again. It was a red, oxidized balloon that he found, like a blotch of memory with some of air's breath trapped inside. He'd held the balloon close to his chest, sobbing tearlessly, his chest caving painfully with each uncontrolled spasm. Sometimes it hurts to cry, his mother once told him and it was then he finally understood her meaning. The tears eventually came, and they did hurt, and by that time Lucy had come looking for him, because he'd been gone for so long.
6: I said I found something new, she said. Yeah? Where were you just now? I was just remembering the balloon. She squeezed his
5: hand tighter, and he squeezed back three times.
6: I love you, it meant. One squeeze for each word. Some words were
5: harder to say after losing a daughter. But some words could be said without talking at all. She squeezed
6: back, two times, ever so softly. I know. Aravada
5: had created the secret language, perhaps a dozen or so phrases through various hand squeezes. It was one of the few things of hers that didn't hurt to keep. They held on to the balloon for a few more days after finding it and it sometimes joined them at the dinner table or on the dash of the car when they went out for a drive. And every day the balloon shrank, and what was left of air
6: inside slowly dwindled and dwindled. Yeah, she said. I remember the smell, he said. We were so afraid of losing her, you know.
5: Her breath was in there, that small part of her we could keep. But by holding on to the balloon and not releasing her breath meant we could lose her forever. Even though by cutting open the balloon, we'd get her for that brief moment and still
6: lose her forever. She squeezed his hand. Once, for a long time.
5: It didn't mean anything specific, but somehow meant something that couldn't be expressed in words. And they both understood. Lucy had squeezed his hand like that the moment before they cut open the balloon to let the last of air go.
6: It smelled like huckleberry lip gloss, she said. It did. Gunn smiled, and although he couldn't see Lucy's smile, he knew it was there.
5: Lucy pointed over his shoulder to another dry rock. The orange-bellied newt had returned,
6: or maybe one of his friends. She used to love carrying those around, she said.
5: Remember the second year we lived here? She found five of them, or six, and she came running to the back patio, holding them all at once. And the next day she found ten. Another long squeeze,
6: which didn't mean anything, but meant the world to him. What did you find? The music box, she said and he understood her melancholy. They had kept Air's
5: baby teeth in a cheap music box Lucy found one weekend while thrifting. The box was wooden, covered with intricate carvings of flowers. When you opened the lid, it smelled like cedar, and what was left of the ballerina inside, just her feet and ankles since the rest of her had broken off long ago, "'spun round while the tune of Swan Lake "'played on what sounded like the world's smallest xylophone. "'I was dusting the dresser in our room "'and moved a pile of books out of the way "'and knocked it to the floor. "'The lid won't close, so the music kept playing and playing, "'so I spun the shoes by hand until the music stopped. "'It was an awful sound, like mechanical crying. "'I think I broke it for good.' and then I saw her teeth, air's teeth, scattered on the carpet. I found them all. I counted. Some with dried blood and... Lucy, he said, and glanced over his shoulder. It was the first time they'd looked into each other's eyes since the reflections in the water of the creek.
6: But that wasn't really looking. That had been a cheat. She had aged ten years. She's been crying, he told himself. She's been crying and
5: her eyes are puffy and dark. No, no, she can't be older. And her eyes are tired, like mine, that's all. Lucy always had dirty blonde hair, but it seemed dirtier now, and longer. Her hands still in his. Felt lighter, her skin more delicate, papery. She had definitely aged. And his own weathered hand? I just wanted to tell you so you wouldn't be upset,
6: she said. We'll find a new music box. Gunn squeezed her hand. Three times. I love you.
5: The secret message went unanswered as Lucy slid her hand free. She offered an expressionless, flat smile,
6: turned away, and headed back to the house. Act Two The Present You'll find love when you stop looking for
5: it. This was another of his mother's sayings, and for most of his life, Gunn thought she had been full of shit. Many years before crashing into Lucy, he had dated, looking for his match. The perfect woman. Woman after woman. And at first he thought he found the right one and married his mistake. Then divorced, and almost married again. He had eventually given up on women at the age of thirty, telling his friends he was happy alone. Better off alone, in fact that he was happier, that if he had to live alone for the rest of his life, so be it, he was good with that. Gunn had stopped looking for love, and that's precisely the moment he found love. Without looking at all, his mother had been right all those years. Lucy found him, in other words. They fell in love, stayed in love, made love, and together created a beautiful child, happily ever after, or so they thought. Gunn found himself at the end of Act One, the past, and the end of an agonizing transition to Act Two, the present. Life, the unforgiving wheel, turned every once in a while, making everything look all so familiar once
6: again. You'll find love when you stop looking for it. True then. True now.
5: Aravada haunted their lives whenever they stopped looking for her, it seemed. Scattered pieces from her past kept cropping up in the strangest of places. It was a different kind of love, but still love. Sometimes the haunts were good, but more often they were bad. This went on for another nine years, their daughter now gone for twenty. After much counseling, they decided to throw it all away. Everything. And it was about damn time. Holding on to the past only brings heartache, they were told by some shrink. It's unhealthy. Aravada was gone. But as long as her things were still around, her absence would continue their assault on their emotions and would ultimately destroy them. That's all they really were, just things. The memories of Aravada mattered, not her personal belongings. They got rid of it all, donating her life possessions to thrift stores and charitable organizations where they would never have to see them again and it was hard, so very hard. But sometimes these material things resurfaced when they least expected, like the teeth in the music box, or the mood ring gun now held in his hand. Her bed, not slept in for twenty years, was the last of her things to go, or so they thought, their neighbors next door finally taking it off their hands. Gun found the cheap silver ring smashed into the carpet beneath one of the drawers built into the bed frame He slid the ring next to his wedding band and within seconds the plastic disc or stone or whatever was set in the center turned a light green color whatever that meant When he removed the ring it left behind a similar color on his finger Air had worn the cheap ring a keepsake from some game at one of her friend's birthday parties, until the day she'd lost it. Gunn knew why rings turned fingers green, but that's not what bothered him now. What bothered him was the fact that his finger was green. He hadn't worn it long enough for the chemical reaction to take place between the acids on his skin and the metal of the ring, which meant air's skin had caused the reaction however many years prior, and he had transferred a part of his dead daughter's past onto his finger. He tossed the ring into the trash container next to the toilet in the bathroom and made his way to the sink to wash off the green. But it wouldn't come off with water. The soap dispenser was also out, so of course he checked under the sink where he found Heravada's pink hairbrush hiding among the toiletries, with some of her hair caught in the bristles. His dead daughter's hair. He brought the brush to his nose, but the scent of her strawberry blonde hair was long gone. It smelled like the pipes under the sink. He tossed the hairbrush into the trash and missed and... I found her phone. Lucy said from the other room. My old one we gave her when she was six and wanted to have a phone like mom. Remember? I do. Lucy, we need to. She used to record herself singing. The Redolent. She loved a band called The Redolent for some reason. I followed bands like that too when I was her age. I've been charging the phone. Want to listen? Gunn released a held breath he was saving to tell her no. It's not a thing. It's a memory, she said. And that seemed to make sense, because memories were not meant to be thrown away. Without saying anything, the head agreed to listen.
7: The rain won't fall on the both of us If I pull you in close and you pull me in close The sky, although it cries, the sky won't cry on the both of us.
5: Her voice, like a tone-deaf angel, ripped open his heart and flooded him with warmth, catching him off guard, because hearing her voice after all these years was something he had not prepared for. And it was... it was... though it rains. She had always skipped the second stanza, because she could never quite remember the lines. And so she'd burst
7: right into the part of the chorus, nearly yelling, And the water cascades, 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 cascades. And more often than not, he and Lucy would sing
5: along at this point. Lucy was in fact mouthing the words right now singing along with their dead daughter, tears streaming down her face, fucking up the lyrics like always, skipping
7: verses. The rain, yes, it will fall. If you're the one I choose, and I'm the one you choose. The sky, yes, it will cry, but it won't cry on the both of us.
5: And when the chorus repeated, now both Lucy and Gunn sat with their daughter, who was anything but dead in their hearts, although their broken voices were just above a whisper. Cascades, cascades, cascades. The pink hairbrush finally found its way into the trash, along with some strands of hair but Gunn rescued the mood ring from the wads of tissues and cotton swabs. He didn't tell Lucy he still had it, secretly transferring the thing from pants pocket to pants pocket over the last three days, sometimes reaching in to feel the cold, sometimes slipping a finger through the band and wondering what color it turned within the darkness. He eventually brought it with him to the creek, where he could hide it from Lucy forever. It had rained hard, so the creek had transformed from trickling to flowing. How he remembered it, the springs and summers when the three of them would walk the creek in their rain boots. He slid the ring onto his finger one last time and spun it around and around, making sure it left a ghostly ring of green behind, and smiled when the plastic or stone or whatever it was in the middle turned dark blue, which he remembered meant either calm or happy, and then tossed it into the largest pool of water. The blackness of the creek swallowed the ring, but he'd from now on know it was there, hidden below the surface, where it would forever remain colorless. Gunn didn't like keeping secrets like this from Lucy but was sure Lucy had kept or hidden certain things without him knowing. Some secrets were good secrets, after all. He and Lucy had gotten better over the last ten years. Getting rid of Eravada's things had helped, yet a small part of him wondered if the happiness would last, whether or not they would ever return to normalcy, whether or not they could ever love each other the same way they had before. When was the last time either had ever spoken those magical three words? I love you. Their hands had symbolically said those unwords a number of times, along with other unspoken phrases in their secret language. But when was the last time they were spoken aloud? Twenty years. Jesus. Gunn crouched down and leaned over the water, once again looking at his reflection. He remembered the last time he'd visited the creek, over ten years ago, and had asked the all-important question, Will she stay? The answer had been yes, and she had stayed. But for how much
6: longer? Will she stay? He had asked the water again. Will she stay for ten more years?
5: They hadn't aged ten years the moment he peered into their future all those years ago. They had lived those years together, hadn't they? The last ten years were a blur. Had they really lived ten additional years together in such unhappiness, and holding on to airs things for so long? Had it taken them twenty fucking years to finally rid their lives of her personal belongings, to try to forget her? No, that wasn't right. They would always remember her. Time is a wheel, he mused. Something turning slowly, sometimes spinning out of control. Time had spun for the last ten years and had for some reason stopped at this exact moment, on this cold winter morning, so he could once again reflect on life. The wonderful colors of autumn were gone, the leaves fallen, the world moodless. Although the creek flowed steadily along, the pool of water over which he leaned was placid as could be. The insects gone, the newts and salamanders hibernated, or whatever they did in the winter. The birds long migrated to warmer, more lively places, and the life around him, for the most part, silent. Only the soft, therapeutic sounds of water and wind kept him company. Two heart-shaped leaves slow-raced along the surface and fell over the waterfall by the large rock. Neither won, but tied as they tumbled
6: over. Will she stay? Gunn once again asked the water, meaning Lucy. And
5: he wondered for how long. Will she stay for ten more years?
6: Will we ever get over our loss? Will we last? A brown redwood leaf with spiky
5: needles fell from above just then. "'landing on the face of his reflection, rippling the water, changing him, aging him. "'When the obsidian water once again settled to mirror glass, Gunn's beard and sideburns had become half brown, half gray, "'along with the rest of the hair on his head, which appeared sparse in places, wispier, his hairline higher.' His nose and his ears had stretched a fraction longer, it seemed, his eyes swallowed by dark, tired circles, the color in his eyes milkier. His reflection had aged ten years, not only physically, but emotionally. Gunn touched his face and watched his reflection do the same. Both sets of hands felt weathered skin. And... He waited for Lucy to join him in the water. Will she stay for ten more years? And he waited and waited, his reflection transforming. His heart sank and felt heavy, although he knew this was all in his head. He hadn't aged ten more years, or twenty, since he had asked the question again. It was the water creating the wrinkles. Not time.
6: The wheel could not be forced to turn. Will she stay for ten more years? Cascades,
5: cascades, cascades, he sang. He felt older, thirty years older now. Could feel the change in the cold aches of his bones, in the more difficult way he breathed. And by his reflection becoming out of focus.
6: Will she stay? He said aloud. Will Lucy stay with me ten more years? Gunn cried
5: once again, the image in the reflection blurring. Will she stay just ten more years? And blurring. He was losing it. Fucking losing it having a panic attack, which he'd had once before when finding the red balloon with the last of air trapped inside, and that's exactly how he felt now. His air trapped inside an ever-shriveling balloon, and unable to escape, his chest tightening, his heart palpitating. A murder of crows, what he had read once were the harbingers of death, cackled above hidden in the trees and inviting death to take him away to be with Aravara. And then she came. Gunn could barely see through the tears and the blur, but she was there. A reflection of Lucy stood over the reflection of his shoulder. She put a papery, bony hand onto his shoulder, and his heart could once again beat. His lungs could once again breathe. He put his own aged hand over hers and squeezed one long time, which didn't mean anything, but meant everything, and she squeezed back three times. I will stay with you until the end, she said, and she had. He could never ask Lucy to do something so difficult, but she had stayed. Gunn wiped at the tears with his free hand, and their reflection came into better focus, although the phantasm of their potential future remained blurry as hell. If you're the one I choose, she sang, and I'm the one you choose. Together they sang the chorus. He didn't turn around, couldn't look her in the face just yet. And that was okay. It would all be okay. Instead, he squeezed her hand in a way he knew would make her smile. Lucy reached a hand across his shoulder, not pointing at a newt this time, but holding a pair of glasses, which he instantly knew were his glasses. Although he couldn't, but at the same time could, remember wearing glasses and, still holding her hand, took them with his other and shook them open, placing them onto his face the way he had done either a million times before or had never at all. The world came into focus. Gunn looked at their reflection in the water and then turned to face Lucy. They were so old. He squeezed her hand three times, the way Aravata had
6: taught them. She squeezed back, three times, and said the words. He said them, too. What kind of play is this? He wondered,
5: but he already knew. Their life had not been a single type of Shakespearean play, but a combination of all three. A tragedy, a history, a comedy. But would they ever laugh again? They both return their attention to the water and perhaps ask the same questions to the looking glass.
6: Can we ever have her back? Can we have her back for just ten more years? Act Three The Future Sometimes the last act of a play can be
5: short and sweet. Sometimes those are the best kinds of plays, or so Gounet believed, for he and Lucy they had seen many over the years. Their daughter was turning ten, and she wanted red balloons. What do you want to do after the party? Lucy asked. Air filled the first of what would be ten balloons, one for each of her years which had become the tradition over the years. Something she had wanted. Next year she'd have eleven, and then twelve, and so on. When I'm as old as you, she said, meaning her father, I may need some help. And they laughed. She caught her breath, tied off the last of the balloons, and flicked it across the room. Aravada held her mother's cell phone, the old one they gave her when she was six and wanted to have a phone like mom so she could record videos of her singing the redolent. Her voice, that tone-deaf angel, ripped open his heart once again and flooded him with warmth as she remembered a stanza from Though It Rains that she sometimes forgot.
7: The sky won't cry on the both of us. When I pull you in close and you pull me in close, the rain, although it falls, the rain won't fall on the both of us.
5: Lucy sang along for the chorus, and Gunn joined in, the three of them bursting right through the chorus, their voices crackling, nearly yelling, and finally breaking into another fit of laughter. What kind of play is this?
3: That was Michael Bailey's Time is a Face on the Water, as read by our own Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spends stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director, but by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of small creatures. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Link will be in the show notes. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.